Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on. Pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and gives respect to elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to the Yarra Libraries podcast, recorded at Richmond Library earlier this year. Today, we're thrilled to bring you author Sarah Hopkins in conversation with Brian E. Doyle. They discussed Sarah's latest novel, The Subjects, and if it tickles your fancy, you can currently find it on the Red Hot Read shelf at Yarra Libraries. You can also find Bryony's books, including The Island Will Sink, in our collection. This is an edited recording. I kind of signed on to do this in conversation just at the end of last week, so I've been reading it every day and I've been very absorbed in this scary and thought-provoking world uh, that the subjects uh, gives us. It's uh, a book which is about teenagers and the relationships and experiences that form their lives and their brains, and also a thought experiment that riffs on real social experiments, like the Stanford Prison Experiment, which Richard Powers recently dramatised as well in The Overstory. It's also a critique of the criminal justice system and education systems in Australia, a restaging of the novel's historical obsession with the struggle between conformity and individuality, and so much more. So, we've got a lot uh, to talk about, and I wanted to start by addressing the book um, as a work of exceptional storytelling within or beside genre before we get stuck into the ideas and questions that it provokes, um, at least for me. Uh, so, I wanted to quote a review straight away. Um, writing in the Saturday paper, Maria Takalander described the book as a fascinating intervention into the dystopian literary tradition. And I wondered what you thought of that description. Was that your intention to kind of uh, make an intervention in this genre, or were you doing something else? No, I mean, I, I wasn't sitting out um, to write an intervention into dystopian, in the, to, you know, the dystopian genre. I was interested in the dystopian genre and I was fairly certain I was heading there but I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't know and I didn't write an ending and, and then work my way to it so I, I wasn't really sure where these young people were going to go you know I knew that I had a 16 year old boy who was dealing drugs in high school and I knew he was instead of being sent to jail he was going to be sent to a mysterious outback facility and I really you know I'm I'm, I'm the sort of writer who really doesn't know what happens next mm. so I I think I it, it, probably sort of when I was a quarter way through the narrative I thought it was going to be I, I, I suddenly was gripped by this dystopian narrative but I was also equally interested in the utopian one which was you know uh, you know I was writing what what I'm afraid will happen mm. but also um, a large part of this novel is what I actually hope will happen mm-hmm. or can happen yeah that's interesting because when when I was kind of trying to figure it in my mind as a dystopia because it was being called that I was like well hang on the dystopia is actually the world outside the not dystopia is the world that we live in or are moving towards and there is some kind of um, utopian thinking uh, in the the school that the characters are sent to. So thinking about that protagonist, Alex, because 
because it's kind of a nice place as against a dystopia, it's a bit of a flip of something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest um, or maybe even Clockwork Orange. What kind of protagonist did you need him to be in the end? So Daniel is the protagonist and Alex is... Oh, sorry, my mistake, yeah, my mistake. That's right. So Daniel is the, the 16-year-old who comes to the facility and Alex is the, the boy there who he befriends. I, I think when you're writing... I mean, it was interesting for me. I decided to write this novel in the first person, which I haven't done before. I was really excited to do that. Um, and I... You know, how... You know, to inhabit the character of a, of a 16-year-old boy. I, I decided that I needed to have an adult looking back to actually portray that voice with the depth that I, that I needed. But... In Daniel, I was really interested to explore a character who had a strong and scary capacity for violence, mm. but at the same time, someone who a reader could relate to and empathise with. And, you know, for me, voice is everything. So I, you know, I really wanted to create a, 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 a vibrancy in that in that voice and humour, you know, I, I don't think you can write, you know, from the perspective of a 16-year-old boy without, without a fair bit of humour. Yeah, and, and an adult looking back on their 16-year-old self, yeah. right? if you can't look back at that with humour, then you're a bit yeah. lost. That's right. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about your influences? Were there any particular books that you were thinking about as you wrote this, developed this project? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because since it's come out, people have compared it with Clockwork Orange. It wasn't an influence when I was uh, writing the book. My experience with Clockwork Orange was watching it when I was younger and just being completely terrified <laughs> <laughs> um, and having nightmares. I think the books that I, you know, I, 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 I write at a desk that has a whole bookshelf behind it, so I'm often getting up and picking up a book and having a read of a few pages and putting it back. And so... Or, or my desk just becomes this pile of different books. But a couple of the books that I love and I, and I was inspired by were, was Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. The sense of mystery in that. Um, and also I, I felt such a connection to, those, to the young people mm-hmm. in, that, in that book. And again, that sense of mystery uh, I found really compelling in uh, Julian Barnes' Sense of an Ending. Mm. That, that sense of someone looking back Mm. and really not knowing until the conclusion uh, what's happening, really. Yeah. So I found that. And, and, and there were just a couple of moments in that where uh, there was such a twist and a turn that, you know, I, I found that so completely successful. So, I, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's interesting because there were a few moments where I thought about Donna Tartt's The Secret History as well, which is kind of like that, even though it's a, quite a different story. Yeah. Um, okay, I would like you to read, if you can... The room was dark. When the light came on, I just stood where I was and took it in. A series of large whiteboards, some handwritten or hand-drawn, others with printed maps and diagrams, each of them dotted with hundreds of coloured magnets and post-it notes filled with unreadably small text. It seemed I wasn't the only one spending my days charting new worlds. This is what he had been doing day after day, all those hours. I stepped closer moved from board to board, Alex by my side all the while watching me, waiting for a cue. I could hear his tentative breaths, feel his eyes following mine. The thing on the computer, he said, this is why. 
On the biggest sword was a series of colour-coded world maps, each with the same legend at the bottom of the map, with a range from data not available, pale green, to extreme, blood red. There was no explanation of subject matter, so I pointed to the one closest to me, child slavery, he offered. In the bottom right, there was a bar graph of the corporate perpetrators. He tapped a red country with a black spot, cocoa farming, to make the chocolate bars for the kids in the yellow countries. Something about what I was seeing brought to mind the children in the videos on the doctor's computer, the boys playing handball and the girls at the art table, the different classrooms. But Alex had already moved to the next board. Landmine fatalities, then malaria, then drought, then school shootings. Great. Um, let's talk about this map of human suffering and how it, uh, what, what that device is in the novel and how it makes these various connections, um, both between what the experiment is and between these characters and how they deal with the world in different ways. So as I said, Alex is, the, uh, is a, a boy that Daniel meets when he gets to the school and they become very close friends. Um, but Alex is a very troubled, depressed young man and Daniel is always trying to find out what it is Alex is doing in his special tutorials and really what, what's, what's at the heart of Alex's problems. Uh, and what he discovers this day is that what Alex is doing is mapping human suffering around the world and that he's completely obsessed with it and he has whiteboards across the classroom and post-it notes and extraordinary computer programs. Um, yeah, so that's so it's 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 the it's the human suffering project is what is what Daniel refers to it as. But these um, main characters that you have, Alex, Daniel, and uh, Rachel, they are all very sensitive to human suffering, uh, whether that's through their own experience of it or through watching it play out in the world. Um, but they have very different ways of dealing with it, and that kind of forms their relationships in the novel. Do you want to, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think Daniel, you know, I don't think necessarily he comes to the school as someone who's really sensitive or empathetic mm. with other people's problems. I think he, he learns that when he's at the school because for the first time in his life, he's able to actually enter into these sort of relationships, really kind of love people. Mm-hmm. Um, his background is one of pretty horrendous violence, you know, a single mum, housing commission, um, you know, he's always had to keep a distance from people and at the school he's actually able to start creating genuine friendships. Uh, so I think his capacity becomes, it's a very personal one that he develops that sensitivity and understanding of other people and the way he learns that is because he, he loves Alex and he sees the pain that Alex mm-hmm. is in. Uh, you know, the doctor says of Alex, um, you know, Alex... Is, is, there's nothing wrong with Alex. He's saddened by the state of things, and he has a right to be saddened by the state of things. And so that's something for that Daniel really needs to get his his head around. And in in connecting with Alex, he then connects more broadly with the world. Mm. Although I think even as an adult looking back, we kind of question his emotional intelligence. You know, across sort of a number of domains, mm. Alex comes at human suffering from a, as a from a very early age he has had that extraordinary sensitivity to what's happening in the world 
um, and he has a, you know he's going back to the relationship that he had with his father. It's about it's a very alternate lifestyle they had and a connection with the planet and the universe and human beings. Um, Rachel's a third character who is an Aboriginal girl who, uh, again, has had her own experience of trauma. Uh, she has a, She's more of an activist voice in the book. She's a very strong uh, activist character. So her, her approach to human suffering is... Well, it's all very well, Alex, that you're setting it all out on whiteboards um, and that you're getting an idea of the size and scope, but what are you doing about it? You know, what, what's the point in knowing if you're not acting? Raising the question that I often have, there is so much we, we need to do uh, in terms of addressing uh, issues in our world. How do you pick? Mm. And that's the sort of thing that, that the characters are confronting. Hmm. Yeah, I had a sense in the relationship which is less explicitly drawn out but very much present in the novel between uh, Rachel and Alex, and I do mean Alex this time, not Daniel, um, which is that, you know, she understands uh, that he sees these things, that she understands that perspective. She also understands that Daniel as a narrator is, is, she calls him an emotional amoeba at some point, when he's an adult, right? So we've yeah. got this sense that he, she's, she sees everything for how it is. But also we have Daniel telling her story. Um, so Daniel can't give us as, as much insight into that relationship between those two characters, maybe because he doesn't, he's not capable of. But there's a moment also in the story where he says, oh, I'm going to tell her story, I'm going to tell her what uh, she told the rest of the characters about her trauma. And I was wondering about this negotiation that I found between the protagonist, also with the writer and this character of Rachel, of how you were negotiating um, the ethics of who can speak for who at various times, that Daniel is navigating, that you're probably navigating, um, and also what happens in the privacy of relationships. The, the adult narrator is telling the story for a very particular purpose and you, you don't find out what that purpose is till the very end of the book. But you, you do have a sense very early on that he he needs to set the record straight in some way. He's correcting something. Uh, and the story of... He includes the story of Rachel in that because Rachel, um, the Aboriginal girl, eventually divulges the story of her past and it's something she's told nobody... Um, so it, it's a big moment in the book when she when she does tell that story. So I, as a white writer telling the story of an Aboriginal girl, it, it's something that I became very conscious of how you, how I how I could do that as a novelist, and then how can Daniel do that as a narrator in the book? So the way I dealt with that was that she demands it because her view is. You can't tell this story. You can't tell the story of a group of young people embroiled in the criminal justice system without including the story of young Aboriginal people in that story. Yeah. So um, that's the way I I addressed it. Yeah, and I quite liked. You know, it was a bit of a meta moment where she's quoted by Daniel as saying, "Oh, otherwise it's just a story about a bunch of white kids." Yeah, which is you know a dilemma for. Uh, the world of the novel, but also a dilemma for writers as well about negotiating this thing of who, who tells whose stories is that we don't want to whitewash and and, and, and present realities that are not um, complete. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. 
Okay, I want to move on because this is a thought experiment um, and it, the thought experiment really addresses some of our ideas about what I'm going to call in scare quotes mental health, um, but also about uh, youth. To me, your book illustrates various inadequacies of language when it comes to expressing trauma and this feels really contemporary. So what inspired you to explore trauma and communication in this way? Well, because I, as a criminal lawyer, you know, for many years, I uh, have observed a, a fairly reductive labelling process when it comes to people in the criminal justice system. You know, and I myself fell victim to that. I would scan through psych reports and find what would be useful for me to use and present to the court on behalf of my clients. Uh, but what I realised was that it was it was a was a crafted set of pieces of information that I'd be presenting, and it was never really the real story if you did it in that way. And I found as a lawyer that you you were actually better off finding out what the real story was and what the real story generally was was that there was a significant traumatic episode or a series of traumatic episodes uh, and that the a label of attention deficit or positional defiant disorder or post-traumatic stress actually didn't adequately explain what was happening with the with that individual and so it was something that I'm always really interested to penetrate as a writer, how we label and how we don't, uh, we don't really manage to present um, the, the underlying trauma that people experience. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that just doesn't fit into a label, into a category, and it's messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so I, I, I think that's how it has, has always influenced me, you know, in this book and others. Mm-hmm. And so, because you imagine Daniel grown up as well, um, what was that process like of imagining this person who's been categorised in all these various different ways, a different future than the one that, say, the criminal justice system, the legal system, mental health institutions might um, have imagined for him? Yeah, and in a way, that's where um, I, I was excited to do that because you don't often actually see it. You don't see what would happen if you properly... Um, if you stepped in at a point in time and provided the, the proper set of supports for someone. I mean, a question I often sort of think about think, uh, this as in if you, if you, were, if you were able to um, start working with a 15-year-old teenager and provide everything that that teenager needed, if you were able to look at mental health issues education issues, physical health, anything that, that is lacking, if you could then do the same thing with every member of that child's family, mm. what sort of outcomes could you actually produce? And people would say, well, you can't do that, come on, you know, we're talking about the re- you know, a limited set of resources, um, that would be an impossible intervention. When in reality, a few years later, we tend to be spending a lot more money mm. by imprisoning that person. Um, and once they're in that trajectory of the criminal justice system and imprisonment, then public resources, you know, there's continual drain on public resources. So, I mean, it's that obvious sort of early intervention argument. And it wasn't like I came at, at writing this novel with that sort of thesis. I wanted to create that picture. But, of course, when I'd finished it, you know, you, you can't help but, but allow, but let your work kind of seep into into what you're writing and, and your experiences. So 
undoubtedly they're in there. I, I mean, I guess I was really interested to write a story about... I mean, in many ways, the characters in this book are, are gifted. There's something about them, which not only is there something very particular and specific about their trauma, but there's something particular and specific about their gifts. It's interesting to think of this... Uh, you know, we don't often see this future that you've drawn for Daniel, but it, I, th- I feel like there was a um, contrast in because you call the people at the school of the subjects. There seems to be an opposition there with the the tenants, um, the people that Daniel's or the men that Daniel's mother gets involved with and who are very violent. And it seemed to me that that was sort of set up as an alternative future or an imagined future for Daniel if he wasn't helped, if he wasn't um, you know supported. Interesting contrast that you're pointing out. Yeah, I mean, there are there are different groups of people and different... I mean, the the, the history that, that's presented, that Daniel's history, Rachel's history, Alex's history, uh, and they're all counterpoints to, to what's happening in the present in the novel and then what, what happens in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about education, your thoughts on education that seem to be coming through in the novel as well. Uh, some of your chapter titles are the names of subjects that I remember taking as part of the New South Wales State Education, trundling off to F-building to take my hissy courses, yeah. um, and smoking durries in the dunnies behind the science building, and perhaps I remember the conversations and social networks around the smoking of ciggies more than I remember what I learned in those classes. Um, in your school that you present in your novel, it's a very um, loose and free-form and associative curriculum, and I'm just wondering, is your assertion here that schools have more of a role to play in helping kids work out how to, how to live well, um, or is that kind of learning always done outside of what we think of as formal education or what we've come to understand as formal education? So, I, yeah, I mean, I've used the, the, the sort of standard subjects of, you know, the education system, some of them. I've also then gone into, you know, tertiary education. But uh, I'm, in, a, in part, I'm poking fun at, at that system and the, the subjects that students, you know, are, need to sit down and learn. And, of course, the fact that it's a sort of a double use of the idea of subjects, that the book is broken up into subjects and then the students themselves are subjects. But, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the education system, I could poke more than fun at it. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, each of these people in the book, like so many people that I know, um, clients that I've had, uh, children that I've worked with, uh, are excluded from the school system and uh, it's a bugbear of mine I, you know I, it, it's nothing more perplexing to me than the system of school suspension and uh, expulsion you know, just when children need the most support they get excluded with a homework booklet and told to go home so yeah uh, I this was the starting point for me was an examination of the criminal justice system but it very much then became an exploration of the education system and obviously the health system um, I'm interested in our systems and how our systems fail our people mm-hmm. you know yeah I wonder do you think that adult social agendas construct childhood in a way that's detrimental to individual children and therefore you know to whatever future society we move towards because the moments in the book um, that seem the most freeing are those moments where the children are 
on their own, you know, they've gone out into the bush and they're, you know, working stuff out in yeah. various ways, which is kind of like a Rousseau's a meal kind of utopia idea of what education might be. So, yeah, and the other idea how I came at that was that the that the the teenagers in the book are deciding what happens to them through a process of a contract. So they have a contract, which is an empty piece of paper, and then they have to determine what goes in that contract. So what what their um, program is at the school has is determined by each of the students, and each of the contracts is different because it's it's, it's literally drafted between student and the Dr. J who runs the facility. So, yeah, I mean, at, at sort of at every point in um, their development in at the school, I was interested to just look at examples of well, what could be done in a classroom or what could be done on a school excursion and, and how liberating those different experiences could be. And, I, of course, I couldn't help but contrast that with uh, what happens within our education system now. Mm-hmm. And certainly within our criminal justice system. Mm. Don't stop. <laughs> I'm about to. <laughs> um, do you think that we're afraid of what young people might do with freedom? Do you think we're afraid of young people? Yeah, look, I think it's a good question. I think if, if when, you know, there, there has to be a level of fear, I think, in terms of the potential of young people, because young people are naturally so brilliant and so challenging um, that they that they challenge our norms um, and rightly so. So I think that there's if it's if we don't fear them, we certainly don't respect them. We don't we don't give them enough uh, of a voice. Mm. You know, in so much of uh, what we do, we don't value the voices of young people, their ideas, um, and I think it's you know it's to our detriment. Right now, I'm really going to start you. So you write toward the end of the book, or Daniel says... Outside, no spoilers. <laughs> no, no, there's no spoilers here. Outside the victim and the perpetrator, the story did not exist. Now, I wonder if you think that that's, that's something that is a fundamental flaw in our criminal justice system. That wasn't what I was getting to with that line, with that um, conclusion. That was... I mean, it's an interesting analysis of it, but where it, the reality here was that Daniel had told one person the truth right. and when that one person isn't there anymore does the story even exist so there was sort of a sort of a metaphysical existential right, right. thing going there but um, that wasn't specifically about the criminal justice system okay but it's interesting to link it in (laughs) (laughs) okay thanks (laughs) Um, is there anything else about your job that really informed the development of this novel that you want to talk about that we haven't Look, I mean, no, it wasn't, you know, it was sort of not one specific thing. People often ask, was, you know, was Daniel, you know, was it, did, did you work with someone like Daniel? Yeah, I've worked with people like Daniel. You know, I, I remember, you know, in terms of sort of penetrating into those stories, I th- there was, you know, I think there was probably a moment where I remember sitting in a courtroom thinking, I, I really need to write a book about this and that was I had a, a, a young guy so he would have been just 18 and um, I'd, I, he'd been my client in the, in the juvenile courts which is so often the way that you know you'd represent someone when they're 14 and 15 and then a few years later you'd be in the district court and they'd be there as a you know someone 
in their early 20s maybe and therefore much more serious offence. Even later on, then I'd sometimes have them in the Court of Criminal Appeal with an even more serious offence. Mm. But there was this one guy and he'd given evidence on his sentence. He'd pleaded guilty and I had um, asked him some questions in the witness box about his childhood. And I'd handed up, I'd already handed up a psych report that had all the findings in terms of his psychiatric conditions. And, um, but I thought it was important to get him in the box to tell a particular story. And it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a terrible story. Um, at, you know, the, the abuse that he'd suffered at the hands of a, just a, literally a deranged father. And I'd, I'd finished and sat down and the prosecutor had got up and was cross-examining um, my fellow and he was, he was tripping him up on chronology. My fellow was, you know, he was a, a, a young Aboriginal guy and, you know, not well educated and was started to stumble. And I was about to object, but the judge jumped in um, and she said, she said, Mr. Crown, this is real. What is happening? What happened to this young man? It's real. And the whole courtroom just sort of went into this silence, um, mm. stunned silence, because this judge was doing something which was completely inappropriate, really, for a judge to do. But she was calling it. You know, mm. she was just sort of calling it out to say, look, forget all these legal fictions that we put across all this stuff. This is the most, you know, heinous, horrible story that we're hearing here. And we've got a young man trying to tell it. And now you're coming in and cross-examining mm. with these questions that were all legally quite right. He, you know, he probably was entitled to do it. But, you know, it was just this wonderful moment of humanity in the system. And I, so I suppose in part, I, I, when I see things like that, I think, you know, we can do better. Yeah. You know, mm. we can. What a moving moment. That's it was, it was, it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I might get you to do another little bit of reading. If you could read the bit that begins at the end of the last, or begins on the last paragraph of 26. Part of the sort of classes of treatment or program that, that uh, Daniel's special tutor called PW gets him involved in is watching his brain waves. Uh, and over time, all the other students are brought into that process of tracking their own brain waves. So they just have a class of doing that. Uh, none of us grew that night. Sleepless, we ended up in the courtyard where our brief conversations moved from a reprise of what the f is this place through to bravado around who cares all good into weighty silence as we pondered our individual and starkly contrasting neural activity. My sense was that we were each waiting to see if the others rubbished the whole thing, but nobody did. As the conversation trickled off and I took one last look at the stars, I decided to lead myself through the task of communing with my brain. Close your eyes. Picture the pre-autopsy brain inside my own skull. Now excavate layer by layer through the cerebral cortex into the deep limbic system all the way to the brain stem. I learned quickly that what the brain does when you try to focus it in on itself is deflect to other parts of the body. It arcs up. 
Out of nowhere, there is pressure in nasal passages, a ringing in the ears, a gaseous gut reaction, then other shit comes in and eventually you just want to go to sleep. Leaving the brain safely out of reach, job done. In short, the brain doesn't want you getting too close. I'm not talking about mantras and meditation, I'm talking about going in, feeling your way around. The pink clump, just a few centimetres in, so close, yet so far away. I really love that paragraph. I think it's fantastic, that section of writing, um, particularly because it seems it manages to dramatise in fiction this thing that we know nothing about, really. You know, this thing that is an organ that is also responsible for so much of our behaviour, of our activity, of our connections. And I wondered if you could talk about the challenges in doing that in fiction. Well, it was really interesting because I didn't think this book was going to be about the brain as much as it is. But once it once the brain became a thing in the book, it, it almost became like a character to the point that I said to the publisher, can we put a brain on the first page so that when people, and I talk about the brain so much, people can go back and kind of get to know this little guy here. So yes, and of course you can't, write, you can't just write about the brain too much because people might get really bored and I didn't want that. But I, so, you know, you obviously have to be really careful with how much detail you include. Uh, but these kids are really smart kids. So when they started getting their head around the brain, no pun intended, um, <laughs> they, they, it, it really took off for me writing it. I, it was really easy to have a sense of young people, you know, starting to grapple with the power of their own brain and what it would mean for young people to actually start understanding how their brain worked. Yeah. You know, sort of kind of getting ownership over the organ. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very empowering and enabling thing for those um, teenagers. And yes, I, and I found it completely fascinating myself. I, you know, I started delving in and researching like mad because it was fascinating. And I, ha I have a brother-in-law who's a neuroscientist, so oh, I bothered him a lot. <laughs> And what about in the school they have to play video games? It's part of their contract and part of their learning and part of... Um, which reminded me of the way that video games are used in that Elm um, Shinriku, uh, if I pronounced that right, cult. Um, do you have thoughts about video games and about uh, various different ways that, our, that modern capitalism, I suppose, affects our brain plasticity? I don't have particular views about that. I mean, I looked into it. Mm. Um, it was a, just it was a good device for a lot of reasons, having... The video games. One of them is a spoiler, so I can't. Yep, can't yep, I go there. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, the the those the research now into video games and brain plasticity is fascinating. So just mm -hmm. part of the rich tapestry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, I think my final question is going to be about these brainwave reports and about the personality reports. Um, there's, a, there's a moment where, uh, you know, this brain monitoring is going on and the protagonist, Daniel, um, can look at it and he says, oh, it's kind of like horoscope. Reminds me of my mum's horoscopes that she gets. And I thought, oh, that's such an interesting observation. In a sense, it's about education, it's about the legal system, it's about um, spiritual kind of stuff, it's about how we're trying to understand ourselves with labels and then to link this somehow to fate. And I wondered if that was consciously what you were kind of taking on with the novel or if you want to talk about that idea at all. Well, I think in a way, um, 
you know, you, Daniel sort of have, is developed enough by the stage, by that stage, to question everything. Mm. Um, and so, you know, a, a, even a report about his own brainwaves, he, he can look at it and go, well, hang on a minute, you know, like that's, that's a bit harsh or, you know, like it's all about <laughs> absolutes and it's, you know, it's pretty damning of me on here, in a here mm. and there. So, you know, it becomes, I think every, everything's up for grabs um, with these young people, um, you know, including observations of their own brains and what, and what that means. And of course, because, you know, biofeedback, neurofeedback, it's not, it's, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that there's any black and white here and that's, that's the way to go. It's just part of um, some pretty extraordinary developments that we are starting to make in terms of neuroscience and and you know how we can use some of those learnings to um, you know to support the development of young people but mm-hmm. does that answer your question at all I'm also interested in how it yeah, I mean I guess a dystopian view of this would say okay now we know well, now we can look at your brain in these various ways we can tell you exactly what you'll be doing when you're 45 55 75 um, and this novel seems to suggest perhaps that that's not the, that's not the case, that, that things are more interconnected, they're more variant than that. Yeah, look, I think that, you know, that, that whole sort of predictive side of things could go a whole different direction. Um, I, I mean, I think that the reality is that we're still at this point. I mean, what I think is so extraordinary when you start looking at our um, understanding of the brain is how incredibly limited that still is. So it's very easy to start writing dystopian or utopian fiction around the brain and what we could do if we understood it better. (laughs) (laughs) And how we could better support particularly young people and developing minds if we understood brains better. Mm. Um, You know, there's always some new, some always something new in this area. And so I I think it's, it's everyone, please watch this space because Mm. yeah, I think if I had another life, that would be, I'd just dedicate it to that. That was Sarah Hopkins discussing her most recent title, The Subjects, with Bryony Doyle earlier this year. We run regular author talks at all branches of our libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you, we'd recommend Jack Charles. We'll be telling stories from Jack Charles, a born-again blackfella, on August 29th in the Fitzroy Reading Room. If you're keen to read the subjects or any of Sarah or Bryony's work, please pop into your local branch, place a reservation online, or download the audiobook. You can find more information about doing all that on our website. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises to only engage in the most utopian kinds of experimentation. Have you heard we're getting rid of library fines? Bring in a can of food for donation from now till the end of the year to have your late fees waived completely. But don't go too overboard. If you keep a book someone else has requested past its due date, we reserve the right to touch it in a disapproving manner. Happy reading! Our theme song is Ad and by Broke for Free.